We're going to be looking at how the Apostle Paul in the New Testament uses the Old Testament in order to remind and instruct us that the Bible is a book that teaches one message. It is a unity. The Old Testament and the New Testament teach the truth of God progressively revealed over time. And so that ancient saying that uh, we use here in our church is true that the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed if you will think about that relationship between old and new testament then you will have some barriers set up that will keep you from going too far astray as you approach the word of god it's this truth that causes paul to appeal so often to the old testament scriptures to make his case in the New Testament letters. And we have seen that repeatedly in our study of his letter to the church at Rome. And I pointed it out over these last several weeks as we have ventured into chapters 9, 10, and 11 of that letter. Paul does this because it's true. The Old Testament and the New Testament teach the same gospel, the same doctrine. The same way of salvation. Old and New Testaments teach that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's why Paul says what he does in his letter to the churches of Galatia, in Galatians 3.8, that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. The patriarch Abraham had the gospel preached to him. The same gospel that we have preached, that you're going to preach today. Now, he didn't have it preached as clearly as Paul had it revealed to him. But it's the same gospel. It's not two different ways of salvation. It is the gospel of God's grace that brings salvation to all who believe in God's Messiah. The one who in the Old Testament was to come, but now in these days we look back to the New Testament era and say, has come. Another reason that Paul appeals to the Old Testament is to show his fellow Jews, his Jewish kinsmen, that the message of salvation that he is teaching and preaching in the first century is actually the same message of their Old Testament scriptures. They thought that he was teaching some new religion. They thought he was making it up. And so he points back to scriptures that his fellow Jews would have been very familiar with and helping them to understand what God was doing in revealing himself the way he did in that old covenant era that now we see the fullness of that revelation in the New Testament era. The Old Testament points forward to the coming of a Messiah. The New Testament announces that Messiah long promised has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is filled with God making promises. And the New Testament is filled with a record of God fulfilling those promises that he has made. If you don't read your Bible this way, you're misunderstanding it. The 39 books of the Old Testament together with the 27 books of the New Testament comprise one book, one story, 
One God revealing progressively from old into new the one way of salvation through grace, by grace, through faith in Jesus. The Bible is the written word of God, Old Testament and New Testament. Now, having said that, do you know what you would have called a faithful Jew in the first century who understood his Old Testament scriptures accurately? A Christian. That's right. Just like Paul. That's why Paul became a Christian as Jesus revealed himself to Paul and Paul began to go back and rethink the things he had once thought about those scriptures. He now sees in a much clearer light and he realizes, no, this is indeed the fulfillment of all that had been taught prior. The idea that the Old Testament teaches legalism while the New Testament teaches grace is a false dichotomy. That is, it's trying to make a distinction and a division where there really is none. That is a wrong way to understand how God has spoken in all of his written word. And we must pay careful attention to the way that the Apostle Paul uses the Old Testament to show the gospel, to show this message of God's grace in Christ as we ourselves are trying to understand the progressive revelation from Old to New Testament. And when we do that, when we follow the apostles' example in that, what we discover is the same gospel that we preach, that we see clearly revealed in the New Testament, is given to us also in the Old Testament. Last week, we saw from Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through chapter 10, verse 4, how Paul contrasts two ways of seeking a right understanding, a right standing before God. Two ways of seeking to attain righteousness or pursuing righteousness as that language is the language that he uses. The first way that he mentions in verse 30 of Romans 9 is the righteousness that is by faith. The righteousness by, by faith. And the second way in verse 31, he describes as a law that would lead to righteousness. And in verse 32, he explains a little more what he means. It is righteousness that's being pursued on works, on the basis of, of works that second way that wrong way is the way that most of the jews of paul's day were pursuing it and they it explains why so few of them were converted it's because they were completely missing god's way god's provision of grace in jesus christ they missed jesus because they counted on their own efforts they knew they needed righteousness god made that clear and so they said, okay, then if this is what righteousness consists of, the law teaches us what it is, then we have just got to do it. We have got to figure out a way to do it. You remember last week we talked about that one of the most common ways they did that is they just dumbed down the law. We got to meet the law's demands. And in their honest moments, they know it's impossible. So they, they lower those demands and then they trick themselves and others into thinking that they've met those demands when in reality, they're still in need of the righteousness that God requires. That way of pursuing salvation always fails. And again, that's where we spent the bulk of our time in Paul's argument last week when we zeroed in on verses 32 through 10, verse 4, uh, starting chapter 9, verse 32, down through 10, verse 4. Today, we're going to get the other side of the contrast. Today, we'll start where we left off last week in verse 5 of chapter 10, and we'll see 
Paul elaborate the right way to pursue righteousness before God. The right way of gaining righteousness before God is what he calls the way of faith. It involves trusting, not doing. Specifically, it involves trusting Jesus Christ as Lord. Receiving the righteousness that Jesus earned when he didn't dumb down the law, but he met all of the law's demands. And you receive that righteousness that God requires of you when by faith you turn away from your own sin, your own efforts, and you trust Jesus Christ as Lord. His righteousness is credited to you through faith. Our text is Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. You'll find that on page 946 if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you in the seat backs. Let me encourage you to get a copy of Scripture in front of you. You want the words of these, this portion of the letter in front of you. We're just going to walk our way through the words that the Spirit of God inspired the Holy Apostle Paul to write. Now, in verse 5, Paul has just finished explaining why the way of pursuing righteousness through our own efforts is wrong and will never lead to salvation. And then, beginning in verse 6, he starts elaborating his argument to show the other side of the coin. He argues that the true way of righteousness is the way of faith. And in order to build his argument, he again appeals to Old Testament scriptures to make his points. So follow along as I begin reading in verse 5 of Romans chapter 10. I'm going to read down through verse 13. That's our text for our study this morning. Hear the word of the Lord from Romans 10, 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The righteousness that is required for salvation can only be attained through faith in Jesus Christ. It cannot be attained any other way. It cannot be attained through your own works and efforts. Now, Paul is already spent uh, several verses explaining the wrong way, the way of trying to keep the law in hopes that God will look upon your efforts and credit your efforts with righteousness. Nobody ever gets right with God that way. Now in verse 5, he starts to contrast that wrong way to the right way of seeking righteousness from God, the way of faith. And this is just quite simply a, a good way of, of teaching. This is a good a pedagogical tool to contrast right from wrong. To not only say this is the, 
the good way. This is the right way. This is the true way. But also to show by way of contrast, this is the bad way. This is the wrong way. Uh, This is the false way. As you do that, you help people discriminate between good and bad, right and wrong, true and false. And discriminating teaching is helpful for people to get anchored in what is right, good, and true. It's important in every area of life to make proper distinctions, to exercise proper discrimination. I mean, in the realm of snakes, it's very important to be able to distinguish certain snakes from other snakes, right? We have coral snakes around here, and they have very distinct markings. It's red, yellow, black bands around the snakes. But, you know, there's another snake around here called a king snake. And it also has uh, red and black and yellow bands around it. But they're not the same kind of snake. Coral snakes, deadly poisonous. King snakes... I'm told is useful, it's friendly, and it's not poisonous. Well, when I was a kid, I was taught a little poem to help me distinguish between coral snakes and king snakes. Red on yellow, kill a fellow. Red on black, friend of Jack. You know, I didn't know who Jack was, but okay. Jack trusts him, I trust him too, you know. I mean, can you imagine if you didn't make that kind of distinction and you just look down, you see red, yellow, black, And you say, well, I'm just going to pick this snake up because I know king snakes have that. Why, if you're not thinking with discrimination, with distinction, you might actually be putting yourself or your family in harm's way. You could be picking up a poisonous snake when you thought it was just an innocent, non-poisonous snake. But if you know the distinctions, that red on yellow, kill a fella, and you look down there and there's a snake, it's got red band next to a yellow band, you just walk away, Right? If you look down, you see a snake that's got red band on black band. Well, if you're like me, you still just walk away, you know. (laughs) I'll I'll be a little more joyful walking away from that snake, but I'm not going to play with any kind of snake. Well, if you don't know the difference between those kinds of, of important distinctions in any area of reality, you can wind up making some serious, even deadly mistakes. Far more so when it comes to doctrinal truth, when it comes to spiritual realities. As we listen to what Paul has to say in this portion of his letter where he's distinguishing the right way of pursuing righteousness from the wrong way, we must be careful to understand him and pray that God would help us to turn our back on the wrong way and with all of our hearts and minds and strength to pursue the right way. So in verse 5, Paul summarizes the wrong way. And then in verses 6 through 13, he elaborates the right way of seeking righteousness by faith. So let's look at verse 5 very quickly, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time in verses 6 through 13. In verse 5, the righteousness required for salvation cannot be attained by works. Again, he's been saying this, and now he just says it very succinctly. And if you look at the first word of verse 5, you'll see that he ties in what he's about to write in verses 6 and following to what he's just written in verses 4 and the verses above that. He does it by using that little word for. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, 
that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, Paul here is citing a phrase, a, a, a sentence from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. And he does so as a summary of the wrong way to seek salvation. Let me just read to you Leviticus 18, 5, so you'll know that what Paul has in his mind whenever he uses these words in our text. Leviticus 18, 5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, there's a challenge for us in looking at what Leviticus 18.5 says and then seeing how Paul uses some of the words from that verse. Because if you read the context of the whole chapter of Leviticus 18, you'll see that Moses is not teaching there. God's not causing Moses to teach there salvation by works. He's not saying here is a way to attain righteousness for sinners. No, that's the wrong way. No sinner has ever attained righteousness by doing things or trying to keep the law. That's not found in Leviticus 18. It's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. The only way for sinners to attain righteousness is by faith in the provision that God has made in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul's whole point in appealing to Old Testament Scriptures is to show that the Old Testament teaches the same way of salvation as the New Testament. That the Old Testament is showing us that we're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, just like his message teaches. Paul's using the language of Leviticus 18.5 to summarize this wrong way of seeking salvation that was so prevalent among his fellow Jews. He is, in essence, putting himself in their shoes and saying, this is what you read this verse to mean. I like the way that John Murray explains this. He says, suffice it to say that the formal statement Paul appropriates is one suited to express the principle of law righteousness. So he's not saying Moses taught law righteousness. He's just saying this phrase that I'm going to take out from its context and extract and cite it the way that my fellow Jews so often do illustrates succinctly a wrong way of pursuing righteousness, pursuing it through the law. The same point he has made already in chapter 9, verses 33, 32, through chapter 10, verse 4. Any attempt to attain righteousness by keeping the law by your own works always fails. Pursuing a right standing before God through your own efforts will never, will never result and you're attaining a right standing with him. Well, again, very succinctly, he summarizes what he's just written. And having done that, that the righteousness required for salvation cannot be attained by works, Paul now begins in verse 6 to elaborate the right way. How does one attain a right standing before God? In verses 6 through 13, he shows us that the righteousness that is based on faith leads to salvation. In verses 6, 7, and 8, Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14 to support his argument. Now, Moses originally spoke those words in Deuteronomy 30 to the people of Israel to impress upon them the nearness of God's word. God had given them a commandment, and he's reiterating that this commandment is, is not esoteric. It's not way out there. It's not incomprehensible. It's not obscure. It is near. In verse 12 
of Deuteronomy 30. Let me just read these verses to you. This is the way Moses actually wrote it. It is not in heaven, talking about the commandment of God, that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you can do it. The Apostle Paul takes those words and he applies it to the gospel message of salvation, specifically to what he calls here in verse six to the righteousness based on faith. The righteousness based on faith warns against wrong ways of seeking salvation. That's verses six and seven. Again, the way Paul appropriates the language of Moses in Deuteronomy 30 to make this point in verse 6. The righteousness based on faith, that's the way that'll get you right with God, says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Now, this is a rather cryptic section of Moses' writings that Paul appropriates here to build his case about the right way of seeking righteousness and I I take some comfort in R.C. Sproul's words on these verses he says this is difficult to understand so hard to understand Uh, you're in good company and we just tread lightly with uh, humility here seeking to understand the the main point Paul is making and we really can do that because the key to Paul's meaning and using these verses is found in his own explanatory parenthetical comments The ESV sets it out for us so that we can highlight it. You see in verse 6, he says, that is. Verse 7, that is. Well, Paul's telling us what these verses are, how they're functioning in his argument. The point that he is making is that the gospel, the righteousness that is based on faith, does not require some extraordinary exploits by you in order to gain access to it. You don't have to be good enough to work your way up to heaven so that you can bring Messiah down to you. You don't have to be powerful enough to raise a Savior from the dead in order to save you. In other words, the incarnation of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead have already taken place and God has accomplished them both. God has done what is necessary. In fact, Not only do you not need to attempt that, it's impossible for you to accomplish that. By sending His only begotten Son from heaven as a man to live a life of righteousness and die a death of sacrificial atonement, and then by raising Him from the dead, never to die again, God has once and for all time done everything necessary for you and me to have righteousness in His sight. He's done it. And so we don't have to think of ways that we have to negotiate or or figure it out ourselves or accomplish something so God will accept us. No, He's done it. He's done it in the life and death and resurrection of His Son. So, the righteousness based on faith warns us against wrong ways of seeking salvation. But then Paul goes on in verse 8 and he shows us that the righteousness based on faith also encourages everyone to trust Jesus Christ and be saved. That's verses 8 through 13. In these verses, there are four things that Paul teaches us 
about the righteousness that is based on faith. Four things I want to highlight for you and point out to you to see what Paul is advocating here that we may all believe, that we may all stand right before God. What's the first thing he wants us to know about this righteousness based on faith, this, this gospel message? Well, in verse 8, the second part of it, he says, it is the word of faith. The word of faith. That's his little summary statement of what it is. You see what it says there in verse 8? But what does it say? What does this gospel say? This righteousness based on faith. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. And then parenthetically, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. The word. That, that word for word there is not the typical word we think of in the New Testament for word. It's a, a word that carries with it this idea of something definitely stated. Something solemnly announced. It's the gospel message of faith. It's the message concerning faith. Now, faith is a vitally important aspect of this gospel of how you get right with God. Faith is at the very center of what it is we believe and what we advocate for others to believe. In this letter where Paul is explaining the gospel of God's grace, Paul uses the noun faith 40 times. He uses the verb believe 21 times. You don't get right with God apart from faith. You cannot be accepted by God apart from faith. To be declared righteous before him, you must trust Jesus Christ as Lord. This is what we mean when we say that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Paul argues this point repeatedly throughout this letter, especially in chapters 3, 4, and 5 that we've seen, spent some time on months ago. But just point you to one verse in the middle of that section, chapter 4, verse 16, when he is talking about how we receive the promise that was given to Abraham. How do the blessings that God promised to Abraham for life everlasting become ours? How do we become children of Abraham? Listen to Romans 4.16. This is why it depends on faith, Paul says, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, Abraham's offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law, that's Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. You see, if it's not by faith, it can't be by grace. If you can receive righteousness from God, you can attain right standing with God any other way than salvation by grace is destroyed. Because God has done it all. And we don't contribute to it. We receive it. If you don't learn anything else from this sermon this morning, indeed, from the whole book of Romans, learn this, that God grants salvation solely by grace. It is received solely by faith in the one true Christ. That's how you get right with God. Some of you are confused about that. Some of you want to know your sins are forgiven. You want to dare Believe that God accepts you, that he loves you, that he's for you, but you're just plagued with these thoughts of I'm just, just not good enough. I still have 
this baggage. I still have these struggles. I still have these questions. This is the simple truth that the Apostle Paul is laboring to set before us, showing us that it's not something that's just brand new. It was taught in the Old Testament as well. God saves people like you and me by grace. You feel like you're not qualified because of your sin? That's good news. That's good news. Because the only people that God accepts are people who know they can't be good enough for Him. So be encouraged by that. And let yourself believe that. I mean, just take God at His word. Do you see how crazy it is? Our minds just play tricks on us. That's too good to be true. I, I know that's what the Bible says, but I also know my experience, and I know where I've been, know what I've done, know how I am. And I, I, can't, I can't believe that. I'm going to believe this. You see how crazy that is? I know I'm not trustworthy. I know I'm a liar. I know I've messed up everything, but I'm going to believe me, not God. Right? Don't do that. Don't let the devil play those mind games on you. Just take God at his word and throw yourself before him. Say, Lord, I'm a candidate. I can't do it. This word says that you've done it. You give it by grace. And I'm going to believe you. And I'm going to turn away from everything I've always attempted, hoping maybe one day be good enough for you. And I'm going to put all my eggs in this basket and I'm going to trust Jesus Christ alone. And he'll accept you. He'll credit Christ's righteousness to you. And you'll find yourself in union with the God who created you, being able to call him your father because of his great love for you in Christ. Well, that's the first thing Paul teaches us here about the gospel, about the righteousness based on faith. It's the word of faith, the message concerning faith. But the second thing is found in the first part of verse 8. It's a message that is accessible to all who hear. It's accessible. The word is near you, Paul says. It's in your mouth and in your heart. Now, that was certainly true of the commandment that, Paul, uh, that uh, God had given through Moses to the people of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 30 when he originally spoke these words. God's word to them, God's requirement for them was not obscure. It wasn't hard to understand. Paul takes that and applies it to this new covenant era that was ushered in by the coming of Christ. In other words, the word of God, the gospel is not hard to understand. What does Paul mean when he says that this word of faith, this gospel message is in your mouth and in your heart. What does he mean by that? He means that for every Christian who believes this message, the gospel has been received and professed. It's been welcomed into the life so that the life is oriented around this now and it is being professed by the life. When Paul mentions heart here, he's not talking about our emotions. He's talking about the very center of our being. Uh, everything in us, this is the real us, including our mind and our affections. When a person becomes right with God, when you become a Christian, this gospel message, the truths of the gospel, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is something that you come to believe with everything in you. You stake your life upon it and you confess it. It's not something you believe secretly and yet 
are unwilling to announce outwardly. But neither is it something that you merely profess verbally without staking your life on it inwardly. You see how simple this is. I mean, some people try to make becoming a Christian really complicated. But you remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, verse 17? Unless you become like a little child, like a little child, you cannot receive the kingdom of heaven. A little child. What's complicated about childlike faith? A dad stands in the swimming pool and this little child's on the edge of the pool and he says, jump, honey, I'll catch you. The child's looking at the water thing and uh, I, I don't float. I don't know how to swim. Uh, you know, this is risky business, but there's dad saying, I'll catch you. I'll catch you. The child just jumps. And if dad doesn't catch, what happens? The child goes down and it's not going to work. But the dad's trustworthy. And he catches the child. The child doesn't contribute anything. The child just takes the father at his word. That's what it means to be a Christian, to have childlike faith in what God has provided in Jesus Christ. It's really not complicated. Faith is the outstretched hand that receives the gift it is the humble, simple recognition that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the way of salvation. This is the word of faith that we proclaim. And if you walked in the room today not trusting Jesus Christ as Lord, friend, don't leave until from your heart you bow and you say, Jesus Christ is Lord and I'm going to trust him. You'll be saved. Well, Paul explains this further in the third thing that he teaches about the gospel in this passage. Not only is it the word of faith, not only is it accessible to all who hear, to make sure we don't misunderstand the simplicity of the gospel, he goes on in verses 9 and 10 to explain that this gospel calls you to trust and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. If you've never started trusting Him, confessing Him, it calls you right now, right here, this moment, this morning, the gospel calls you to trust Jesus, confess him as Lord. Look at verse 9. Paul puts it like this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see these two components that he's highlighting here? It is believe and confess. He mentions confession first and then belief, but then when he explains it, he turns them around. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? You believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's what he emphasizes in the last part of verse 9. Why does Paul put the resurrection of Jesus front and center? Because that is the most fundamental fact in all the world. It is the most fundamental reality on which everything else in the gospel hinges. You know, sometimes I have opportunity to talk to those who are skeptics and agnostics and atheists, and they're always wanting to go to different things in the Bible. What about this contradiction? What about that? And, and because I'm so old and time's important to me now, more than it used to be, I say, look, man, let's get rid of the little stuff. Just prove Jesus didn't come back from the dead. It's over. Game over. If Jesus didn't come back from the dead, you win. But if Jesus came back from the dead, 
you're in bad shape. Because if there's a man who lived 2,000 years ago, just like you and I are living here in 2021, and he actually died and was buried, and then on the third day came back from the dead and never to die again, so 2,000 years later, he's just as alive now as he ever was. That changes things. That means that everything that he taught is true. You ought to believe it. Everything he said he did has been done, and you ought to take him at his word. Everything that he warned about, you better take seriously, because there's a dead man who came back from the dead, and he's never going to die again, and he's the one who's being set before you. You believe in your heart. God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You believe that? Children, do you believe that? I mean, amen. Good. Never doubt it. We profess it. We say it in the Apostles' Creed. We talk about it all the time because it's all through the Scriptures. But when you believe that, everything else, everything else flows out of it. The Gospel, everything in the Gospel is true. The righteous life of Jesus, the fact that a man could live a perfectly righteous life, he could attain the righteousness God requires of you and me, and then that righteousness could be credited to you, not because you do anything, but because you trust Him. That's true. How do we know it's true? Because there's a dead man who came back from the dead and he's still alive today 2,000 years later. And he shed his blood on a cross. He substituted his life for sinners. Voluntarily. Submitted himself to the wrath of God against sin so that all who trust in him might have sins completely forgiven. How can I be sure my sin is forgiven? Because there was a man 2,000 years ago who lived, who was crucified, and who came back from the dead, and he's still alive today. Believe God raised him from the dead. It changes everything. It orients your life. It enables you to bow to Him as Lord, as Savior. Verse 10, we're told to believe and be justified. Whoever believes is justified. That is, to be declared righteous regarding your standing before God as if you'd never sinned. And God makes that declaration. God justifies not the people who try hard, but the one who trusts in His Son, the Lord Jesus. You believe. And you confess. Confess Jesus. Specifically what? Well, here it says that He is Lord. That He is Lord. What does it mean to say Jesus is Lord? It meant a whole lot more in Paul's day than we tend to think of today. To say Jesus is Lord is to say Jesus is God. We're going to see that in verse 13 very specifically. He's God, a man that they ate with, that they walked with, that they talked to, that they touched and were around. Is God. That's a bold, bold claim. It's a claim that Jesus Himself made and Jesus Himself received worship from others because He was God. But it also means that He's King. It means that he's over everything. 
He's sovereign. He's the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so as we try to navigate our lives and we have to deal with all kinds of authorities in this world, we know that Jesus is the ultimate authority. And we profess that. And our allegiance is first and foremost to Jesus Christ. And all other authorities that would try to come in and coerce us or try to lead us in pathways contrary to Christ, outside the Lordship of Christ, we are willing to say, no, I I have one King of all kings. I have one Lord who's over every other Lord, and you're not Him. Because Jesus is Lord. Confessing Jesus as the crucified, risen Lord, we believe this to be true, and as we confess it because it's true, and we count on Him to make us right with God, results in being saved. That's how a person is saved. Do you see this? You see what is required to become right with God? What has to happen to a person to be counted righteous in God's sight? What must a person do to be saved? These questions are answered so simply, so succinctly in verses 9 and 10. Believe and confess. Take God at his word. Say, I do believe. And I will confess it to be true. You don't have to pass a theological test. You don't have to pass a conduct test. You have to, where you are, as you are, say, God, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you raised him from the dead and he lives today. And I'm going to stake my life on this and I'm going to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And this will be my confession from this day forward. Do that, Paul says, and you'll be saved. Children, do you believe this? Good. How old do you have to be to be saved? What's the age requirement? You have to be 15 12? Huh? 10? Yeah. Can you be saved as a five-year-old boy? Yes, you can. Can you be saved as a nine-year-old girl? Yes. Children, don't ever, don't ever think that this salvation is something that is only for grown-ups. In fact, grown-ups have to learn lessons from you. They have childlike faith that God raised Jesus from the dead, that He is Lord, and that as we trust Him, God accepts Him, accepts us for His sake. So, children, trust the Lord Jesus. Confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Stake your life on Christ and live for Him. So the gospel is the word of faith. It's accessible to all who hear. It calls you to start trusting, confessing Jesus as Lord. The fourth and final truth that Paul wants us to understand about the gospel in this passage is that it's for everybody. It's for everybody. This is verses 11, 12, and 13. Look at them again. Notice the language of all 
and everyone. Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who believes in Christ will not be put to shame, Paul says in verse 11. What he means by that is that on the day of judgment, you will not be there trusting Jesus and hear condemnation come to you. No. On that day, Jesus, who has been your righteousness from the moment you believe, on that day you will be vindicated for Jesus' sake. You will not have to stand there on your own answering for yourself because Jesus is your Lord. You will not be put to shame. This is a reference to Isaiah 28, 16. And it means that there will be eternal justification, vindication. And notice that this is for everyone and anyone, for Jew and Greek. This is Paul's big concern here, as you recall, in the first part of chapter 10, first part of chapter 9, when he desires, he expresses his desire for his fellow Jews to be saved. And he's telling them, look, this gospel that so many Gentiles are believing and so few of our fellow Jews are believing, it's for you. Brothers and sisters, we need to get this clear in our heads too. It's for us and it's for everybody we know. It's for the people that are born on the wrong side of the tracks. It's for the people that you think will never be saved. It's for the people that you think are so caught up in their own religion that they're never going to listen to Christianity. This is a message that saves sinners. There is no other way. There's only one Lord. Do you see what he says in verse 12? There's no distinction. No distinction. Only one way of salvation. And it's by receiving, calling upon Jesus Christ as Lord. Then verse 13, he just underscores it. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a very familiar New Testament quote of Joel chapter 2, verse 32 from the Old Testament. Joel, that passage, the Old Testament is quoted three times in the New Testament. You go back and read Joel chapter 2, verse 32, and you'll see who is being referred to there. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God, will be saved. Who's Jesus? He's God. He's God. And whoever calls upon him, Paul says, no doubt, will receive salvation. Jesus is the only Savior the world has. He's willing and able to save anyone and everyone who trusts in him, including you. There are no national gods. There's no other religion in the world that has a way to God. All of the other religions of the world are false religions. We say that not out of arrogance. We say it under the authority of God's word because Jesus Christ is Lord. And whoever calls upon him will be saved. That's why we pray for those Afghani Muslims. That God would release them from the darkness of Islam. That they might come to know the truth that is in Christ and be reconciled to God and have righteousness credited to them and to be saved forever with us because there is no distinction. The way of salvation is open to anyone and everyone. So the question that I want you to leave with this morning is this. Am I trusting this Savior? 
Is Jesus Christ my Lord? Do I believe in my heart God raised Him from the dead? Am I willing to live it, to confess it with my mouth? Yes, He's Lord. If so, then welcome to the family. Welcome to the people of God. But if not, friend, why would you live one more second when this way of salvation is set before you in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus? God's done it all. You don't have to do a thing. Everything you need is in Him. Why would you not trust Christ right now? Trust Him now. God will accept you. Brothers and sisters, we must never forget the simplicity of the gospel. We must tell people who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and call upon them to trust Him. Parents, never let your wonderful, right, good study of theology and wanting to understand the intricacies of all that God's revealed, those are right and good impulses. Never let that quench your understanding that the way of salvation is simple. That the gospel is simple. And teach that gospel to your children. Pray for them. Pray with them. Encourage them to trust this Lord and Savior. To live for Him throughout all of their lives. Christ is everything we need. We must rest in Him. We must hope in Him. We must put confidence in nothing else to make us right with our Creator. But we know that because of Christ, our Creator is our Father. He loves us. He's for us. He will undertake everything that we need done in this life and the life to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for such a wonderful Gospel. We, we couldn't make it up and we would not let ourselves believe it if You had not revealed it in the Scriptures. But You have revealed it. And You've set it before us in all of its simplicity. And, and we're not going to trust ourselves. We're going to trust You. And we thank You for Your Spirit's work enabling us to turn from sin and trust Christ. And oh God, where there was no saving faith this morning in those who came into this room, create saving faith now before they leave this room. And help us all to stake our very lives on the crucified, risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For we pray in His name. Amen.